Let's pray. We're going to be in James chapter 3, the second half of it, and then we're going to get into chapter 4. There's a lot of stuff. Um, just been praying this week and asking what does God have for us, and I just want you guys to know I never preach anything that I don't feel like I need to hear too. As I'm going through, I'm just studying, and I'm like, man, this is like what God is saying to me. It's convicting me. It's encouraging me, and so I want to share it with the body. So I thank you guys for this opportunity, and uh, let's just ask God's Holy Spirit to be here right now. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, for your word. God, we ask that you would fall upon us right now, that you would open up our hearts and our ears to what you'd say. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see like you do, Jesus, with your heart. Help us, Lord, to understand your word. We pray that your word would take center stage and that we'd come out of this steady understanding it more and being able to apply it to our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all this. And everybody said, amen. All right, so when I was a student, um, I had a great teacher. He was a great math teacher. Some of you guys know Fred. And while he was a great teacher, I was not a great student. I didn't know math very well. I ended up in what we affectionately called the dumb kid class. Um, never made it past Algebra 1. Um, I don't know how I'm still alive, um, you know, with all that math I use every day. Just kidding. Anyway, um, but I just struggled in math. You know, I was good at English and history, but uh, I would sometimes have these bouts of desperation and hopelessness in math, and I would just stay up all night trying to do it. And, well, okay, that's not true. Most of the time it was laziness. And being the sinner that I was, I'd show up to school and I'd go to the girls in my class because they were the smart ones. Um, and I would go up and say, hey, what did you get for uh, questions, I don't know, 1 through 45? Um, could you share that information with me? And uh, so I'd get the answers and I'd go in, I'd present my answers, and my teacher, Mr. Bosch, I would say, that's a good answer, but uh, show your work. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. And I knew I was in trouble when I heard that because I knew the answer, but I didn't know how to get to the answer. And the call to show your work makes you ask the question, how did I get here? How did I arrive at this conclusion? Many of us know the answer, which is, yes, I'm a Christian. But how do we get to that conclusion? Is being a Christian tradition? Is it a family tradition? Are you like me where you're born into it? Um, you know, you're born into the world, the doctor slapped you and you said, hallelujah. And you know, you were a Christian because I was a pastor's kid, you know, so you're just, you're automatically a Christian when you're born, right? When you're a pastor's kid. That's at least what I thought. Um, For us, is it, I believe I am a Christian, therefore I am a Christian? Well, that's not true because we know even the demons believe. See, the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to is a faith that leads us to action. It's kind of like if you say, I have faith in this parachute, that if I jumped out of a plane, it would save me. You don't really have faith in the parachute until you actually jump out of the plane and pull that drawstring. And as Christians, we can sort of bask in the benefits of Christianity without wanting to actually assume any of the responsibility to really live as Christ did. But Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruits. And as Christians, we're called to show our work. So as we get into the text today, let's look at what James would say about that. Look at James 3 verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, if you are wise and understanding of God's ways, God's love, and God's plan for salvation, prove it by living an honorable life and doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. It's saying, show that you're a believer with the way that you live your life. And I'm going to just go ahead and tell you guys where we're going in this message so you don't get confused along the way. Um, 
this is where we're going. As Christians, we find ourselves constantly in a war between good and evil, and we are called to fight in that war. But it's of great importance that we understand what our identity in the war is and what one of our great weapons is. Our identity in the great war between good and evil is we are called to be peacemakers, agents of reconciliation, people who are called to find those who are not at peace and introduce them to the Prince of Peace. And the way that we do it, the weapon that we wield, is humility. And it's all wrapped up in this idea of wisdom. James, in this chapter, lays out the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. See, we're called to wield the weapon of godly wisdom with humility. That means not bashing people in the face with our knowledge. You know, sometimes knowledge can puff up with pride, and we learn something new, and we just can't wait to go bash all the heathens with our knowledge of the truth. But listen, guys, if we want to live as peacemakers who humbly use God's to bring the light of Jesus into the dark world, we must understand the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And that's one of the main aspects of what we're looking at today. So let's just follow the text and see where it leads us. The first thing we're looking at is the idea of what worldly wisdom looks like. In verse 14 and 15, it says, but, you have, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. What James is saying to us is the heart of worldly wisdom is bitter envy and self-seeking. And notice that he says it's demonic. Now, I'll be honest. I remember, you know, who remembers the 90s? Anybody? If you don't. I don't know what you were doing back then that you don't remember it now. Uh, but the 90s were, were a different time. You know, it was a different time. Hair was bigger. Um, and um, I remember a lot of times people were talking about things that were demonic in the 90s. It seemed that almost every movie or TV show or, you know, you play music backwards and it was demonic. Um, I remember the Harry Potter books. Anyone remember those? I remember my sister's friend got a Harry Potter book. And my parents were like, we're not sure if this is demonic or not. So they gave it to me and they're like, you read it, because like, you're our first child, so who cares if you get possessed? We've got two more we can deal with. Uh, you know, the first child ultimately gets the brunt of the badness. Um, so, you know, I read it, and I read like a chapter, and I got bored of it, but you know what? I had a lot of friends who had it, and guess how many of them turned out to be witches and warlocks? None! They're all doing fine. The, the, they were not possessed by the spirit of the evil book. Um, I remember um, I had a friend growing up who wasn't allowed to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I asked them why, and they said, well, my mom says in the theme song, at the end of the theme song, it says, turtles in a half shell turtle power. And, and there will be, my mom says there will be no power, but the power of Christ in this home. And I just thought that was amazing. Um, see, sometimes we can give the devil more credit for things that he doesn't deserve credit for. But, but listen, we need to be careful because I think far more dangerous than a Harry Potter book or a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song is not realizing the source of real true demonic activity, which is Bitter envy and self-seeking. See, Paul has a right to say these things are demonic because think about Lucifer's origin. He's in heaven. He's an angel of glory and light. He's a worship leader in heaven. He sees God for all of his glory and who he is. And then God reveals this plan of creation and he wants to create these beings called humans and love them and make them princes and kings and give them just value and authority. And I just, I, I just you know, this is just me thinking through it, but I can see the 
bitter envy in Lucifer saying, what kind of plan is that? Like, what about the angels? Like, what are we just supposed to do? Serve these humans? God's plan is crazy. Who is he to think he can order us around? In fact, I could be a better God than him. And he starts going to the other angels and saying, listen, follow me and we'll be gods. And it was Satan's bitter envy towards God and his children, his unwillingness to be a self-sacrificing servant and his self-seeking and selfishness. See, bitter envy is saying, I deserve what they have. And self-seeking is saying, I will stop at nothing to get it. When we live our lives in ways where envy and selfishness are ruling our life, our lives, our actions are really actually demonic, if you really think about it. So next time your child is being selfish, you can say, you're being demonic, and you can be justified by these verses and not have them think you're a weirdo. They probably still will think you're weird, but um, I'm giving you permission right now, so... The disease is planted in us. The disease of selfishness. You, you see a child on the playground and they've got a toy truck. And what does the child next to them do? It smacks them in the face and takes the truck and says, mine. Because you don't have to teach that. Like there's no class for toddlers on how to be satanic. They, they just... They, they just can be. They're, they're selfish. We are, it's built in, and we see it now in culture because selfishness really defines us. Uh, my generation and the generations underneath me, the high school students I work with, we're known as the selfie generation because we're just constantly taking pictures of ourselves because everyone just wants to see our face 24-7. And it's crazy because uh, I just read, and I guess true story, but now more people die from taking selfies and not seeing their surroundings than shark shark attacks. So, and I don't even know how many people have died from taking selfies while a shark was attacking them. Um, Listen, no one has to teach us how to be self-absorbed. Our sin nature takes care of that. And if you really think through just the idea of like why a demon is doing what he's doing, why Satan fights for what he fights for, he's a cornered animal. He knows he's going down. He knows that he's defeated. And a cornered animal, if you know, is dangerous. He wants to take out everyone he can with him. See, pride was the first sin which led to bitter envy and selfishness, and pride causes destruction. I'm going to show you a couple quotes from an awesome guy named Andrew Murray who literally wrote the book on humility. It's a great little book. I encourage you to read it. It's just so amazing. But um, here's the guy, Andrew Murray. He's got so many great little gems that we're going to look at today. Um, this, this awesome Christ follower, he says, humility is the place of entire dependence on God, and it is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. He's saying if we start with humility, where we say, I am nothing, Jesus is everything, I can do nothing of myself, but it is only through Christ that he uses me as a vessel and I am able to do great things for him, it's the source of every good thing in us, that humility. But when we lose that and we have pride and we say, I'm a self-made man and it's all about me and it's all about building my kingdom here on earth and it's all about what I want, then really we tear down everything that Christ is trying to do in our life. Um, C.S. Lewis, you guys know C.S. Lewis, he says, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And this is so key, and I think we see this played out. I'm going to show you guys an example of that loss of contentment and even common sense. And I want you to know, I'm going to show you this picture, not so we can laugh at this man, um, because some of you guys might find this humorous. I'm not showing you this picture so we can make fun of somebody, but I want to show you where the logical conclusion of this thing goes. So this is a guy named Jordan 
James Park. And he was a man who was so uncontent with his own appearance and thought it was so boring and so unflattering that he decided to spend $150,000 to try to make himself look like Kim Kardashian. I don't, I don't know if he succeeded, um, but he's, this is his quote, because basically he found out that the, the collagen they had put inside his lips to make them bigger were leaking. And so his lips were just leaking fluid all the time and like potentially dangerous to his health. His response to learning this is, it's quite scary. These need fixing. I'm worried if they keep leaking, I'm going to end up with small lips again. And that wouldn't be me. My lips have really changed me as a person. And I'd be so normal and boring without them. And We can look at this guy and we can maybe poke fun at him and be like, oh, what a weird man for doing this. But really, honestly, this guy's problem is just like the extreme outward expression of what actually goes on in all of our hearts. When we are prideful and vain and selfish, we puff ourselves up with pride and all of the goodness in our heart leaks all over the place. And when we're confronted with it, we're just like, all we care about is our outward appearance and our pride and our ego. We are all in danger of falling into the same trap this guy has fallen into. Now, maybe you've seen the results of selfishness and bitter envy in your own life or in the lives of the ones that you love. Maybe you've seen relationships shattered, husbands and wives torn apart by selfishness, parents and kids separated by selfishness, friends turned into enemies by selfishness, finances destroyed, lives ruined. See, the Bible says that selfishness is like chasing the wind. When you finally catch it, there's nothing there. And the wisdom of the world is a lie. It says your happiness matters above all else. Stop at nothing to get it. It's, it's why I think the idea of evolution without God involved is, is just so attractive to people because it says it's all about survival of the fittest and might makes right. But I would say that Jesus is not about the survival of the fittest because he's the fittest. He's about the survival of the ones he loves. And it's not about might makes right. It's that Jesus actually makes right of our wrongs through his death on the cross. And so what we're going to look at today is just a few points on wisdom. We've looked at what worldly wisdom looks like. Let's look at the outcome of worldly wisdom. Now, I I heard from a friend, uh, Mike Neglia, who was teaching a study in Cork, Ireland, and he was talking about a study that was done. And it was a very, like, liberal study where basically these college professors were looking at the idea of sin, and they were British professors, and they were like, you know, oh, you know, sin is an archaic device, and it really is rude to call people sinners. So what we need to do is really we just need to get sin out to the way we need to throw sin in the bin. And, um, you know, we can try to just call it something else, but regardless, taking away the term of sin doesn't take away the results of sin. The wages of sin is death. The outcome of worldly wisdom is death. Look at verse 16. It says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Worldly wisdom, living for, and it doesn't, we don't have to overcomplicate it. Like, we don't have to go off on all these tangents of worldly wisdom. It all boils down to envy, selfishness, and pride. I think of confusion that comes through worldly wisdom. There was a man who, in, a, in another state, who went on Craigslist to try to find a prostitute. And uh, he ended up finding a woman who he thought was saying that she was soliciting prostitution. That's not what she was doing. There was some confusion, some weirdly worded things. So he hires her, thinking 
thinking he's, she's coming over to the apartment to sleep with him. She shows up, realizes that's what the guy wants. That's not what she thought was going down. So she tries to run away. She runs out the door. She runs down the stairs. She gets into the cab that brought her there. The man steps outside, true story, with a shotgun and kills the driver and the woman. And in court, he actually got off free, did not go to prison, did not get in trouble because according to his state law, the woman was his property and he was allowed to shoot anybody trying to take his property. So the cab driver was trying to take his property. So he was completely fine. And you see, this is not godly wisdom. This is man's wisdom corrupting things and causing people all sorts of confusion. In Judges, it says, um, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in the same way without God's wisdom we just do what's right in our own eyes and it only leads to evil it says in the bible here every evil thing comes from envy and self-seeking we see corruption injustice sex trafficking murder theft racism and the list just goes on and on we have a broken world one of the darkest ways I've seen this take place lately is just in the, the shape of how the culture has come to view abortion as something that's glorious. Um, there's a hashtag that came out recently, which is um, like shout your abortion, which is basically like, like praise and, 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 and salute what you've done. And it's just so sad because there's so much brokenness from that. And, and it's, it's, it's the epitome of self-seeking. It's saying that I will take someone else's life because my life is more valuable and my comfort is more valuable. And we just, we see the way worldly wisdom causes people to accept things that are so far from the heart and truth of God. And now I, I say we should look at just some, for some encouragement, let's look at the contrast of godly wisdom. This is humility. Andrew Murray tells us again, he says, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten because in God's presence, he has learned to say with Paul, I am nothing. He has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the spirit of of his life. The spirit of Jesus is not for us to seek our own honor, but to seek God's honor in our lives. So now I'm going to jump a little bit to chapter four, and then we'll go back to chapter three. But to make this all tie together, we're going to jump ahead and look at chapter four, verse one. In James 4, 1, it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. I want to show you um, just an example of this, of a war that just was caused for selfish reasons. We have here, this is uh, 1137. This is the bearded King Louis VII of France. And he married Eleanor, the Duchess of Aquitaine. And uh, as a present, they were given these two provinces of France. But later, the king went off to fight in the Crusades. And when he returned, he was clean shaven. Not a big deal. Well, the queen didn't like it. Still not a big deal. Uh, And she asked him to grow his beard back. Not an unreasonable request. He refused. Still not the end of the world. So they divorced. Okay, taken a little bit far. 
Then Eleanor went to England. She got married to King Henry II. And then, to spite her husband who wouldn't shave or who wouldn't grow his beard back, she ordered war on France. And it was a war that lasted for 301 years. So we see hundreds of lives being lost over selfish man self-seeking reasons. And it's so sad to see that selfishness and pride between a husband and wife cost hundreds of thousands of their lives. But how much more should we humbly beg God to protect our own marriages? How much more should we go to God and say, God, keep every petty, strifeful, envious, jealousy, like every little selfishness in my marriage, keep it out. Help me to be a self-seek, or a, not a self-serving, help me to be um, a, a, a husband who seeks the glory of God and the needs of his wife before the selfishness of his own heart. That's what we need, husbands. That's what I need. And I can be so selfish. When my, when my wife asks me to take out the trash, I'm like, oh, I've had a long day. I don't want to do it. But I know that God is calling me to, it's, it's not like to even say like, oh, like to take up my cross and take out the trash. Like what, what a wimpy thing to say. God is calling us to love our wives, husband. That's all I'm trying to say. This is the grand scale of things. This is big picture, a war being started over something this petty. But let's go down to a more personal scale. What about wars that start between us and other people? What about for us and our spouses? The things that we fight about that are so petty. What about for children and parents? Just the little things that turn into these big fights and big wars and maybe both parties are unwilling to apologize and and be humble. Uh, For some of you, it's friends and neighbors. Maybe you've gotten into just war relationships with other people. And I've seen this in high school ministry and junior high ministry especially. Um, I've seen just junior high girls especially just like come at each other like just maybe they were walking through the lunchroom and one girl gave the other one a dirty look on accident like it wasn't even on purpose like they just got a little bit of a lazy eye and it turns into this big war where all of a sudden like each girl is going to like like 20 of their friends to like build up their army of defenders and then like I see them at the, the lunch tables like running and eating. no I'm just kidding it's it's not like that it's it's not like Braveheart or anything but it feels that way the selfishness and bitter envy of people who are unwilling to just listen to one another and forgive. It all comes down to selfishness. And maybe you're hearing this and you see it in your own life. When we want our way and we don't get it, oftentimes we go to war against one another. And you might say, well, listen, Aaron, I I haven't killed anybody. Like, when I don't like somebody, I keep it to myself, and I just think really unpleasant thoughts about them, and then I pray, Lord, strike them down, and I trust he will be faithful to do it in his time. Listen, Jesus says if we hate someone in our heart, we have murdered them in our heart. In the same way, you might say, well, you know, I mean, I'm not happy with my marriage, and I I don't want to try to fix it, so I'm just going to be selfish, but I'm not cheating on her. I'm just looking at stuff I'm not supposed to. I'm just thinking things I'm not supposed to. Jesus says that is just as bad as committing adultery. It's adultery in the heart. And just to give an example from Martin Luther, he says, hey, we can let birds fly above our heads, but why would we let a bird create a nest on our head? You know what I mean? Temptations and wicked thoughts, they're always going to be there, but Jesus calls us to fight against them, not to let them make a home in our heart. It is the result of selfishness to do that. And we might say, and let's go back to that verse, we might say, I do it because I don't have what I want. But I think Jesus would say, you don't have what you want because you haven't gone to the source of what you need, which is Jesus Christ. 
He calls us to ask, seek, and knock for what we do not have. And I think this all hits home for us because it causes us to realize, and it causes me to realize, like I say, I don't preach anything I don't need to hear. We're all guilty. We've all blown it, and we're all so easily swayed by worldly wisdom. That's why, church, we have to be on guard. I want to share with you three ways that worldly wisdom has crept into the church. These are three poisons, and they're obstacles to the path of peace, but the antidote for each of these is humility. So just very simple. Simply, the first way that worldly wisdom has crept into the church is hate thy enemy. Just this idea of hating our enemy. See, as Christians, we constantly find ourselves in the middle of a culture war. There are so many people in the world who now oppose Christianity, who are actively trying to come against it. But we need to remember something vital to the war. People are never the enemy. The Bible says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with the forces and spirits of darkness. Now, it's hard to believe, though, when we hear people shouting in our faces all the time when they disagree with us. Is that true? Is that not true? When we see culture shouting against Christianity, it makes us want to shout back and defend ourselves and come against those who would oppose us. But we forget people are not the enemy. They are prisoners of the true enemy. They are captives of Satan and worldly wisdom. And we hold the key to their freedom. It is the key of love of Christ and the call to repentance of sins. And those two must go together. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But so often we hate our enemies. We may not say we hate them, but our actions reveal our heart. And we do this through two ways. We hate our enemies through two ways. One, if we believe someone or some group is in sin, especially one of the big sins in society right now, we shun them, reject them, make them outcasts. We constantly talk trash about them and we complain about how they are making our lives difficult. This group is making our lives so difficult as Christians. This party is making our lives so difficult. If only they would stop. If only they get it together. We complain about them. We can hate our enemies. Another way, though, and this is very key, is we accept their sin even though we know it's wrong because we don't want to hurt their feelings. And that's a whole other side of it. See, it's like if someone was sick and walked into a hospital and said, hey, do I need to see the doctor? And we said, no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. That's not loving in a way that's actually quite hateful. If we really believe someone is dying from cancer of sin, we must lovingly get them to see their need for the doctor. And we get this so mixed up. We drift from, from one side to the other of the extremes. Either we hate our enemies or we're just like, hey, everything's fine. Um, And, you know, we can care more about being right or more about being tolerant than about showing God's kindness that leads to repentance. And one of the ways I've seen this done is just on social media, on Facebook, on things. We can get on there and we get all riled up about the people we disagree with and we can post these little pictures called memes. They're just these little squares and, and you guys know what I'm talking about. And usually the object of those is to communicate People who agree with me are awesome. Everyone else is an idiot. And they can be very passive-aggressive. And, and, and I see that so much. And I think God is calling us to something more. Another extreme that I see is I remember just at a camp talking to students from all different churches. And um, we were just doing a little Q&A. And, and one of the students um, brought up homosexuality. And so I asked the, the students, what do you think about homosexuality? What are, what are your views? And half of the group was like, oh, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, whatever. Like, it's normal, right? But the other half, and, and that's not right. But then the other half was like, they're horrible, disgusting people. And I remember there was a group of students who said, we should ship them off to an island and drop a bomb on it. And when I heard that, I was just like, 
how God's heart breaks when we hate the people that he desperately wants to reach. How God's heart breaks when we turn into the whitewashed tombs of the pharisaical hearts where we think we have it all together and other people deserve our hatred because they're sinners. The reality, the reality honestly, is sin is a disease and it has different symptoms, but it's all the same root disease. And it would be crazy if there was a group of people who were dying from a disease and they got healed from it and then they went out on the streets and they saw people suffering from the different, the same disease but with different symptoms and they hated those people and didn't try to bring them to the doctor that healed them. That would be insanity, but that's so much of what we see in Christianity. And, and I, do, I, I doubt that many of you guys are there at that point, but some in the church as a whole are. And I just want to encourage you, the Bible says, let no one think he stands lest he falls. Let us never get so puffed up with pride that we think that's not us or there's no form of hatred in our heart for sinners. We must have humility. We must be able to be challenged and we must go to God constantly and say, search my heart, oh God, if there's any pride or judgment or hatred hatred towards sinners because I feel like they're making my life inconvenient, I challenge you. I want to ask you, what are the scales of your testimony? And what I mean by that is if someone were to look at the output of what you are saying in life or in social media, what would those scales be full of? Would the side that is heaviest be the side that is saying just these thoughts of the world is ending, it's going down in flames, I'm afraid of the future, I'm frustrated about the government, I'm frustrated about people who disagree with me, I'm upset at sinners, I'm angry and confused. Is that what would be weighty in the output of your life? Or would the scales be full of stories that uplift, stories that point to God's grace, stories that show God's mercy, stories about lost people finding Christ, stories about self-sacrifice and forgiveness, stories about redemption and hope, stories that lift up and point to Christ, not at the destroyed, decaying world around us, but the Savior who is the only one who can bring hope into that darkness. Guys, we're called to be like the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. Without the light of the sun, it hangs in darkness and is good to nobody. If we do not line ourselves up with the light of God, then we are reflecting nothing but our own darkness. I heard a great quote by John Corson where he said, and I'll I'll say it in the John Corson voice because I can do it. Um, He says, Let us not fuel the fires of hell with our fears and frustrations, gang. (laughs) I apologize to John, but, but that's so good. Seriously, let's not fuel the fires of hell with our fears and frustrations. That's so good. Imagine this. I was thinking about this. As passionate as I am about just, just the evils of what abortion does to people, and I'm not ashamed to say that because I believe it with all my heart. I could yell at people who are supporters of abortion. I could get in their face. I could protest them. You know, I could just get all up in their business and just try to change them by yelling at them. But I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, if me and my wife were able to find one young girl who was struggling with the decision of whether or not to go through with it, And we were able to sit down with her and lovingly point her to the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ and his redemption and his plan for her. And if that child was born through that witness, if you fast forward to 200 years, there's been so many children born from that 
decision to share love. There's been families that have started like that, that, that line continues because love ended up winning in the end. And I think that God is calling us as a church not to sit behind our keyboards and look at the world and get on and just talk about how things are terrible, but to get out into the darkness and carry our light and make a change. <coughs> the second thing I don't want to look at is just this idea of my kingdom come. It's the heart of the prosperity gospel. It's assuming that God is here to make my life perfect. In uh, James um, 3, verse, or in James 4, verse 3, it says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's just this idea of, you know, like, hashtag blessed, like everything's great because it's all about me. God's making my life perfect. Jesus is here to give me success, me wealth, me prosperity, me material happiness. Guys, we must understand that Jesus has our greatest good in mind, and it's called heaven. But the journey to get there will be filled with trials and tribulations and struggles. But he also tells us if we rely on him through those storms, we'll come out stronger and with a deeper love for him than ever before. It's not about us. God has a great plan for us. That's true. But, I mean, ask the martyrs. Ask the people who died for their faith. Did God have a great plan for your life? Like, you weren't rich. You got your head chopped off. Yes, God had a great plan for their life, and he has a great plan for our life. But it's not a plan to bring us material prosperity. It's a plan to bring us joy and him glory. And we only do that by humbly living self-sacrificing lives to do what God has called us to do. There's a great guy named G.K. Chesterton who says it would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. It's not about us. It's not about being a self-made man. It's about being a God-made man. It's about being somebody who doesn't say, it's all about me and I got here on my own. It's about someone who's willing to say, I am nothing and I only got here through Christ. And we have our perfect example in Jesus, the suffering servant. See, humility, C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's waking up in the morning and not saying, how can I live my life to make me happy? But it's waking up in the morning and saying, how can I live my life for the glory of Jesus Christ, regardless of what I want to do? And guys, when, seriously, uh, this is just a random little junior high thing I used to say, but when we do not live our lives for Christ, we're like a penguin, because that's a bird, but it should be flying. Birds are made to fly. Don't be like a bird that doesn't fly. Do what you were made to do. Glorify and worship Christ, and you'll soar. I think of this, like for me, as a man, I try a lot of times to be self-centered in the way that it's like when you're a man in the world, you want to preserve your legacy, you know? You want to be remembered. You want people to think, oh, he was somebody at his job. You want people to think back like, oh, man, no one did the job better than him. Like he was the guy. He was the man. Or you want people to remember you and think highly of you. And so a lot of times we're, we're trying to build up our own name. We're trying to build up our little kingdom here on earth. But then I think about it and it's like, okay. I know a lot about my parents, but not as much as I could. I know a lot about my grandparents, but definitely not as much as I could. And I think of my great-grandparents, and I'm like, I don't know much about them. And I think of my great-great-grandparents, and I'm like, I, like, who were those people? Like, I do not know them. And it just goes on and on. I, just re- I realize we will be forgotten. Like, honestly, our names are not going to last, but the one name that does last is Jesus Christ. So why contribute to something that will fade when we can contribute to something that is internal? Satisfaction doesn't come from chasing our story, but through pursuing God's glory. 
It rhymes. So it helps. The last thing in the three is just this idea that outward is everything. And I'll just be really quick on this. I remember uh, one time I was uh, watching a worship service of my high school kids. And there was one girl during worship. And she just had her mouth open. And you know, she was just praising the Lord. And I, I looked at her and I was like, man, like, I'm such a good youth pastor like, for instilling this heart of worship in my students. And then I, remember, or then I realized she was yawning. <laughs> That's why her mouth was open so wide. She was yawning. Guys, the outward appearance can fool people, but God knows what's in our heart. He always has cared about the inward, and I think we've lost the art of self-reflection. What I mean by that is we're so consumed on what do I look like on the outside. Every Instagram post has to be perfectly posed with like a perfect quote so people think I'm spiritual and good-looking and everything's great with my life. Every Facebook post has to be just this clever, witty thing, and people think, oh, that guy's so great. Um, when we're in our families or at our jobs, we just present ourselves. We want like, people to think I'm somebody, and I'm great, and everything's good on the outward. But we spend so much time focusing on the outward. Do we spend time sitting before God and saying, not like, Lord, I just want to come before you today, pray for all the sinners in my life. Those guys are terrible. Lord, help them to repent. But do we come before God and say, God, I need you. I am a sinner. Search my heart. Reveal to me the wicked things. Help me to grow. We have lost the art of self-reflection. And I want to ask you, where does your heart lie? Because guys, listen, being a sold-out, on-fire Christian who passionately hates their own sin and radically loves the sinners around them and is outspoken about the redeeming love and power of Jesus Christ is going to be seen as a cultural freak, just to be honest. Even by some people who call themselves Christians, they're going to look and be like, wait, what? You, you, you're concerned about your own inward heart and you actually love sinners and like spend time with them and try to convert them to Jesus? Like, well, what is going on but that is good and honestly trying to be anything else is making ourselves a friend of the world it's sitting on the fence between god's kingdom and the earthly kingdom because we just want people to accept us and like us and we don't want to think about the lost and we don't want to think about sinners because we're building our own kingdom it's it'd be like just imagine this and you know, this is convicting for me when I, I first heard this, this illustration. So please understand, like, I'm, I only preach the things that convict me. That's why I'm excited about them. Uh, imagine that, you know, you're sinking, and a big group of people, you're drowning, and you're sinking, and Jesus throws the life preserver, and you grab it, and he pulls you up, and then you get up on the shore, and there's, there's people drowning, and Jesus says, okay, grab the life preserver, throw it in, like, we got people to save, and you go, ah, uh, you know, I'm not really good at that, uh, and plus, these people are gross. Uh, I don't really like them. Uh, you know, it'd be really inconvenient for me. Like, that guy looks really, like, heavy over there, like, trying to pull him up. Like, I can't deal with that. I'm just going to go build my own little hut on this island because I, I need shelter. And, uh, yeah, and then you go and you build the hut on the island and you slap a cross on the wall and you put a fish bumper sticker on it. And you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Jesus has called us to rescue people. He has called us to live our lives self-sacrificially, not building our kingdom, but living with a completely different paradigm for life. It is never about us. It is all about his glory. We, be, we should decrease, like John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest man on earth. And Jesus, uh, John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. The only thing that matters is that the name of Jesus is known. And when I look back on my life, I want people not to remember what I did, but that I proclaim the name of Jesus. He says <clears throat> in 
Verses four through five, adulterers and adulteresses, do not you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God is jealous for your heart. He is jealous for your love and he is jealous for you to get your eyes off your own life and look at his life because that is the life he wants to live through you. He is desperately jealous for your heart. And and the the truth is, the honest truth is, we need a better way. And just as I'm wrapping this up, we're going to look at what godly wisdom looks like. And I want you to, I want to encourage you, write this verse down, go home, and maybe even with your kids, look at this verse, talk about it, pray about it. How can we live with godly wisdom? I'm just going to touch each point of godly wisdom here and just give you a little bit of insight into it. But I want you to pray about what this looks like in your life. But the wisdom that is from above in James 3.17 says, It is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good, and with good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. To be pure, to have the humble wisdom that is pure, it means it's devoted to God's glory. Your motives are for his kingdom, not for any self-seeking. To be peaceable means you're not seeking conflict. You're not using your knowledge and wisdom to try to make conflicts with people, but you're seeking peace and restoration. You're, because starting conflict is us trying to get what we want, but striving for peace is us laying down what we want to get what God wants. To have wisdom that is gentle is you're kind. You're not harsh or cruel. You're meeting people where they're at. You're coming down to their level. To be willing to yield means willing to give up our rights and desires for the sake of others, even our enemies, just as Christ did for us. To be full of mercy is to spare some people from what they deserve. To have good fruits is producing treasure for the kingdom of heaven, not for this earth. Without partiality means loving and respecting people outside our social circles or church denominations or political parties and even those who do not follow Jesus at all. It means loving them unconditionally to try to show them who Jesus is. And without hypocrisy means willing to humbly admit when we are wrong and confess our sins to one another instead of pretending we are sinless as we point out the sins of others. Pray over this verse this week. The final point that we look at, the final point, as, and I'm going to invite the band to come back up and um, just begin to play as we go into a time of communion. But let's wrap this up. Let's look at the final point. We need to understand that to be a peacemaker is our identity and humility is the weapon that we wield. So we come full circle now. So in James 3.18, going back to chapter 3, look at it. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do we want to be that kind of people? What does that mean, to be those who sow peace? I think it's important to remember that we are called to be agents of reconciliation. What that means is we were once enemies of God, but now we're forgiven and made friends of God. We were dragged out of the gutters of our sin. We were paupers who were made into princes and princesses. And there's people all around us who are suffering from a lack of peace. Their flesh wars within their soul, but we've been called to bring them peace. And the only way they'll find peace is through the gospel. There's a war for souls and the stakes are high and we look to Jesus for our example because how did Jesus come? Did Jesus come to earth saying, hey, I'm God and all of you must bow before me and if you don't, I'll throw fireballs at you. No, that's not what he said. He came as a humble servant. He came as a baby in a manger. He was humble to the end, loving sinners, coming down to their level and meeting them with the gospel. He was a poor carpenter, a suffering servant, a lover of the loss. 
And his humility is our greatest weapon in reaching the world. Look at just, that's the end of really chapter three. Look at the end of our section in chapter four. It just, it all ties together. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I just want to end with a story. I recently went to San Francisco with just a small group of our high school students and uh, Maranatha Chapel with uh, Trevor O'Keefe, our old friend, um, my old mentor. And it was such a blessing to go to San Francisco, but my heart just broke being there. We were only there for a short amount of time. We were in a district called, called the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, and I have never seen such an amazingly dark, homeless situation. Like just people living in filth, literally every inch of the street. Like urine was running, like rivers of urine, like running in the street just because the place, people had nowhere to go, nowhere to use the restroom. Just darkness, desperation. The, the walls of the building that we slept in, you could see through the glass and homeless people just pressed up against the glass of where we slept. And I remember walking through the town one afternoon on the missions trip, and I saw an old African-American gentleman in a wheelchair. And as I just walked by, I looked at him, and he just seemed so sad. Like, and I looked in his eyes, and I saw hopelessness. He was just hunched over. He, he, his eyes looked pained. And I just I realized this, this man has no hope. And then later on, the next day, I saw the man again. And for a minute, I had hope for him because I saw a tall, blonde man kneeling next to him and their eyes were closed and I thought oh he's praying with him but as I walked closer what I saw was the man who was with him was pushing a needle full of heroin into the man's arm and as I saw that my heart just broke because the look of hopelessness didn't go away it just seemed to get bigger on the man's face and I just saw he's in he's in prison and he knows it He's locked into his sin and his, his hopelessness, and he knows it. And my heart broke, and, and Jesus spoke to me. And, and what he said to me was, Aaron, without me, you are just as lost, just as addicted to sin, just as homeless without your heavenly home, without me. And this is where the world is at. Whether they're the top-tier businessman at a corporation or a homeless man in a gutter, without Christ, they're all the same. And Christ is what the world needs. We, he, we need to reach the world with the gospel. And I love this. Just another just quick note from Andrew Murray. This is so key. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. It's so good. And just as we go into this time of communion, I want to ask you to embrace your identity. Just to realize, whether you grew up in the church like me, or whether you just got saved yesterday, to realize without Christ, we're all beggars. Without Christ, we're all lost. Without Christ, we're all homeless. And there are people around us sinking down who need Jesus. But if we're prideful, if we're judgmental, If we're focused on our little kingdoms here on earth, we won't reach them. And so Jesus calls us to lay down our desires and our wants and our life. We need to come empty-handed to Christ because trying to live our own life for our own passions is like standing before the Grand Canyon and turning around and digging a little hole in the ground with a tiny children's shovel and saying, look what I made. 
when what God offers us is the Grand Canyon of possibilities, of truth, of life. We need to submit to him. And as we enter into communion, I'm going to ask you, during this time, as the ushers pass out the communion, as we sing this song, don't sit here and pray for just the sinners in the world, that maybe for another time, but for today, what we need to do is we need to look inward and ask God, what is in my heart? Forgive me for any judgment I've had. Forgive me for any anger I've had, for any bitterness, for any selfishness, for any envy. Clean my heart. Give me a heart transplant. Make it new so that I can walk with you and so I can live a life that reflects the light of your love. Let's do that now. Let's worship.